is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. On this episode, we're talking to Richard Wright and Ben Davis from the Jaguar Owners Association of North Texas. Also, Richard West talks about the personalities of those at the top of motorsport. And Tom has been trying his luck with the classic touring car championship at Thruxton. JECpodcast.com Hello and welcome to another Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Hope you're well. Wayne Scott here with you uh, with a bit of an American special. Actually, this week, because a little bit later on, we're going to be going across the Atlantic and talking to some fellow Jaguar fans over in Dallas, Texas. I'm looking forward to hearing all about the Jaguar Owners Association of North Texas and seeing what club life is like over there in the United States of America. Uh, Also, speaking to you on this, the week that marks 31 years since Ford bought Jaguar. It was on the 11th of November 1989 that it was announced that US car giant Ford Motor Company had paid $2.5 billion for Jaguar, and it was all about their quest to enter the luxury car market. And it happened just as Jaguar's brand was very strong, but the business underneath it was having some severe difficulties. And it couldn't have come at a more important and critical time for Jaguar at the time. If you want to read a little bit more about the story of how Ford bought the Jaguar company, you can see that currently on our news pages at jec.org.uk. I've written something of a, a little article looking back on what made Ford buy Jaguar in the first place, the rocky road to success that they went through to turn the company around through the 1990s and into the early 2000s, and the legacy that that Ford ownership has left Jaguar even now under Tater ownership as Jaguar Land Rover. It was a period, of course, that saw the X300 shape XJ6 morph into the X308 with the V8 engine as the six-cylinder was ditched. The X308, of course, with that V8 in XJR form, was the fastest production saloon car you could buy in the late 1990s. And then, of course, the turning point, where nostalgia became all-important as the Jaguar S-Type was launched. Ending, of course, with the X400, the launch of a baby Jaguar, the X-Type, which celebrates 20 years since its launch next year in 2021. Incredible. Just part of the celebrations we're going to be looking forward to as part of the Summer Jaguar Festival at Blenheim Palace on the 16th of May 2021. So if you're an X-Type owner, it's something not to be missed. And of course, you'll be sharing that birthday with the Mark 10 Saloon celebrating 60 years, the E-Type of course for E60, and of course, the commemoration of 70 years since the first Le Mans win by the Jaguar C-Types in 1951. Now, I'll get into terrible trouble for buying myself presents this close to Christmas, but I couldn't resist this week picking up a new book that I'd seen advertised, and it's brand new launch from Veloci, and it's uh, entitled TWR's Le Mans Winning Jaguars, and it's written by John Starkey, and there's quite a lot of photographs in here that I've never seen, and I've got pretty much all of the books ever written on the Silk Cut sponsored Jaguar team, run by Tom Walkinshaw Racing, of course, and some really good factual information, some historical stories, and some stunning photography. And there's even a few pictures of our very own Richard West in there 
as well. It's worth a look. I'm still making my way through my copy, but it is by Veloce Books. You can get hold of it through their website at veloce.co.uk. Brand new outs, TWRs, Le Mans winning Jaguars. I'm about half the way through this, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Really nice little sort of weird-shaped hardback book, actually, sort of a weird small square. But a very good book nonetheless. So I shall settle in as the nights draw in and enjoy that. And don't forget, there's lots of stuff you can enjoy as well via the JEC shop. And if Christmas shopping just seems like so far away and so much hassle, don't be out there queuing to get into all of those ridiculous department stores or whatever. It's all going to be manic in December when lockdown gets lifted, especially in England. So why not check out all of the gifts that are available to you on the JEC shop? Just go to jec.org.uk, click the shop button there, and there's a plethora of gifts that you could treat yourself with and those Jaguar fans in your family. And if they're not Jaguar fans, you can soon make them Jaguar fans. You can see all those gifts at jc.org.uk in the club shop. Also via the club shop, of course, you can still buy those raffle tickets to win that V8 5 litre XK, the 2014 signature edition XK that we're giving away as part of our raffle. Due to be drawn at the Summer Jaguar Festival on the 16th of May, of course, this year, all of the profits going towards the Haemophilia Society. We talked to them earlier on on this podcast series so do get your tickets, jc.org.uk forward slash raffle. Tickets are just £2 each, and that Jaguar XK could be yours. Also, don't forget as well, if you have to renew your membership of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club, then I do encourage you to get it done before November ends, because when you do renew your membership this month, you'll be placed automatically into a draw to win one of our superb Pioneer dash cams. They're worth about 170 quid these. They're top of the range, top flight tech and essential equipment, sadly, on today's roads, these dash cams. One of them could be yours. In fact, there's two to give away. So one of those two could be yours. All you have to do is renew your membership before the end of November. You'll get placed into the draw for them. Or if you're listening to this podcast and you're not a member yet... <gasps> Why wouldn't you be, to be honest? But if you're not, it's fine. It's all cool. You can join very easily by going to jcpodcast.com. Top right-hand button on the page there says join now. Click that, fill in your details. And if you join, you also get put into that same draw. So if you join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club before the end of November, you could be winning a top flight, top of the range, Pioneer VREC DZ600. That's what they are. Dash camera worth £170, all when you join or renew with the Jaguar Enthusiast Club between now and the end of November 2020. Memories of Motorsport. Richard Remembers on the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Well, once again, it's time for more Richard Remembers memories from a lifetime in motorsport and uh, Richard I thought this week what we could talk about are some of the personalities that motorsport throws up or rather what personality you need for motorsport because you and I have often said that those who reach the higher echelons of motorsport have something different about them don't they especially drivers um, 
talk about some of the experiences you've had or stories that you've come across of drivers that just shows they they think in slightly different ways to us they do indeed wayne and and i think you know we have you could talk about this subject for hours on end because there's so many examples i mean i think one of the most striking ones um was last year when we did that event at Heathrow park and you were interviewing us you know the twr gang and Andy Wallace sat there on his stool and we were talking about the lighting efficiency of a Le Mans car. And Andy was saying that, and I think a few of the people that were there, you know, their, their eyes widened when he said it, that, that the headlamp throw on the Jaguar at Le Mans on the Molsan Strait in the middle of the night was about 45 yards. And you, you have to think to yourself, well, here they are doing 230 miles an hour, you know, with a closing speed difference with other vehicles of 100 miles an hour in some cases. And you can see 45 yards ahead. I don't think you'd want to do that on an evening trip back from the supermarket, to be honest. Um, but leaving the joke of it aside, the seriousness of it is is this immense self-belief that all drivers I've ever worked with in any formula from touring cars through to Formula One, including sports cars and rallying, they have a different mindset and they their persona changes when they put their ovals and their helmets on. Uh, we've talked a lot, you know, during the series of podcasts we've done today about some of, you know, the, the, the world champions that I've been lucky enough to work with. And it's almost like a switch. You see them click over and they start to think very differently. I don't hold with the view that people sometimes say, oh, you know, they're crazy. They don't ever think about, you know, the dangers involved. I wouldn't say there's a driver or a motorcycle rider or a rally driver out there that doesn't think about those things. But unlike mere mortals, they seem to be able to control their emotions much better. Um, there's a very famous bit of footage where James Hunt gets taken out in a race and uh, he gets out of the car and starts to walk, obviously very angry, you know, across the gravel trap. And one of the marshals grabs him by the arm and tries to drag him off in another direction. And James reacted quite badly. But I think it was Ron Dennis who said a long time ago, he said, the, the last thing you try and do with a driver full of adrenaline is reason with them in the first few seconds of an incident because their mind is in a different place, their brain is working at a different speed, their body chemistry is completely different. And it takes a little while for them to come back to, dare I use the word, normality, really. And it is that self-belief that you mentioned there that so many times gives certain drivers the edge. They seem to be able to turn off that what-if or it'll-never-happen-to-me part of the brain. And, and just picking up again on something Andy Wallace said during that interview, when he was dealing with that lack of throw on the headlights on Molesan Strait, and he described to us how he couldn't see the corner coming. What he'd do instead is wait for the 100-metre board, count mm. to three, and just turn right. Mm. But it's not just the drivers, is it? Because that also finds its way into the actual business side of motorsport and the management of the teams as well. It does. But just what you were just saying, just before coming on to the, the actual team principals and team owners, there's a there's a fascinating. I'm a space fan extraordinaire. I love everything to do with space exploration. My sister lived very close to the Cape, and she used to telephone us when the Saturn Vs were lifting off. You know, and I couldn't wait to get out there and eventually go and see the place. But there was a fascinating documentary recently on Neil Armstrong, and he was flying what effectively in those days was badly referred to as a flying bedstead. It was an aluminium frame with various uh, thrusters on it and it got out of control something happened in one of the fuel tanks and there's this little bit of footage you can find on youtube that the thing starts to go out of control and just before it goes out of control neil ejects and safely comes down to ground and 45 minutes later he's in the second version of it flying again and 
he was asked afterwards, didn't, didn't that set your nerves a jangle? And he said, well, no, not really, because I knew the cause of it. And I, I knew that I wouldn't allow that to happen on the second flight. And the logic that prevails in these guys' minds, when people sometimes say, oh, you know, perhaps they don't see the dangers, they see the dangers better than anybody because they sit in the cockpits of these cars at very high speed. But they're much better at processing risk management than the average human being is. And I, I think that's a fascinating point, really. Mm, absolutely. Well, of course, uh, the business side of motorsport is all important and it's often very cutthroat and there are very difficult decisions to be made. And in order to survive in that world, you really must have a very, very tough and hard business head. And those people that have that and have a skill for delivering that are the ones that get on in motorsport on the business side of things, isn't it? Yeah, we've talked about some of them before. I mean, Tom Walkinshaw, for example, had this... uh can-do mentality. Tom Tom wasn't a detail man. He he knew what he wanted. He knew how to get it. And he could be a very charming negotiator, but he could equally be just brutal at times and just say, listen, that's the deal. That's how it is. Take it or leave it. And whether that was negotiating with sponsors or negotiating with drivers or buying services, he could be that way. Other times he would turn the charm on and you'd go for a drive with him and, you know, he'd take you out for a nice lunch and then he'd sit very quietly and calmly and negotiate because he had this ability to to gauge people. Tom also had an edge to him where occasionally he would he would let fly. Um, conversely, when I worked with Ron Dennis, I never, ever saw Ron get angry. Um, Ron spent a lot of time reading and studying um, ancient Chinese war masters and how they operated and how they worked. And Ron's, you always knew you were in trouble when Ron went silent. And when people sometimes are put in positions of pressure, when there's a bit of silence, the natural reaction is to start talking again. And he wouldn't do that. Ron was one of those guys who, whether it was negotiating top-line drivers or having a long-term vision and needing to generate large sums of money for it, occasionally you would sit before him and you'd put your case and there would just be this stony silence. And it was a very clever negotiating tactic because it, the person sat opposite the desk would then start to spout forth and then he would say, hang on a minute, stop. I don't think that's what we're going to do. But I never, ever, I saw, I saw frustration and I saw anger in his eyes, but I never, ever saw him lose his cool. And it was a great, great thing. And in fact, his strategy also, Ron was a very long-term strategist. Tom was good at the motorsport strategy, working out how we would go to Le Mans, for example, and we've talked about that before. But Ron, the McLaren Technical Centre that exists now down at Woking in Surrey, this phenomenal building that was designed by Sir Norman Foster and opened by Her Majesty the Queen a few uh, years ago. Ron first launched his concept of a tag McLaren Technical Centre in 1985 at the Geneva Motor Show. I still have one of the original press packs. And over the 20 years that followed, he never, ever lost sight of his strategy for having a centre of excellence. So these guys do, uh, they're different to the drivers in the sense that they evaluate risk differently because they do take enormous risks in business in, in the money that they spend. And having seen them all over the years, whether it's Ken Terrell, Eddie Jordan, Ron Dennis, Frank Williams, they all have this ruthless streak in them. They just display it in different ways. And working with these people, Richard, a chance to be <laughs> to be honest with us now. Were you ever intimidated sat in an office with them? Yeah, I crossed I crossed swords with Tom once um, over quite a minimal 
um, situation. I was a director at the time, and we used to have a very early morning Monday meeting at Broadstone, which is the next estate along from Haythrop Park, which is why I always feel a bit sentimental when we go to Haythrop. Um, we had to put in weekly reports, and they, ha- they had to be just literary paragraphs at a time. And I put several reports in, and... Uh, I hadn't got any response and I don't know why I'd flown in very early that morning from um, from Amsterdam and I rushed from the airport to get to the meeting. It was a few minutes late, made my apologies, and got that steely stare I talked about before. And at one point, Tom just brushed over the reports and I, and I happened to say, why would we bother writing these? You know, you don't seem to read them. <laughs> and the next 30 seconds left me in absolutely no doubt where my future lay um, and everybody it was like that wonderful moment in the Tom Cruise film I think it's called The Firm where he walks in the office and nobody dares lift their eyes up and that was me in the office that morning and yes I did feel a bit nervous and I apologised afterwards and he said to me promo you know I'm the boss and you don't do that in front of you know the board and it was a salutary lesson and also once I got a dressing down from Bernie Eccleston and I have to be honest I wasn't nervous at all I was absolutely terrified <laughs> because Ber- Ber- Bernie as the ringmaster did an incredible job of building Formula One up but you know I, I made a mistake once and he made it very plain to me that I wouldn't make that mistake a second time but it never it never dimmed the respect and the enthusiasm for the brilliance that those guys have be it sports car racing touring cars rallying or Formula One they like the drivers are very special individuals and they don't come along very often I guess it's that kind of um atmosphere that actually drives motivated people to be their very best which is what you need when yes this is a business but fundamentally you're in sport and you're pushing the boundaries aren't you yeah funnily enough i wouldn't use the word intimidation i I think any of us that have been fortunate to work for these guys and many of the men and women that work for the modern breed today there has to be an enormous respect because that's what leads to a successful winning team culture. And in fact, a lot of the research I did in my books with Ken Pasternak and Mark Jenkins, we found that although people have, you know, (laughs) whether they're mechanics, commercial guys or whatever they happen to be, you do occasionally get on the wrong side of the boss, as it were. But they're also very fair. I've never worked for anybody who intimidated for the sake of it they would pull you into line when you needed pulling into line but what made the people around them so successful in their own fields as well was just a deep respect for what these individuals be drivers engineers or team principals have and i think that's what makes teams great you know you you have a strong charismatic leader and you follow that leader and you're not frightened to speak out and they're not frightened to speak out either it's a very open culture fantastic memories there and uh, talking of respect well uh, there is lots of respect between our competitors in the Jaguar Enthusiast Club Race Championship and next year there are some new announcements on the horizon which we'll hear about very soon in a future episode but Tom was out to test out some new competitors at Thruxton listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. So following on from last week's preparation, um, we're now just arrived up at Fruxton Race Circuit and of course it's absolutely pouring down with rain. So 
as I suspected, it is definitely going to be a wet race. Um, it does look like it's maybe going to clear up this afternoon, but to be honest, looking how much sitting water there is, even if it does stop raining, I don't think we can have a dry race anytime soon. So we're just literally unloading the car now. We're going to carry out some final checks, just check all the levels before we go out. Um, we always do this, just a bit of a precaution, really, talk the wheels. Um, and then um, we're going to go out and see what we can do. We've got a qualifier. Um, the qualifier is at half past nine, so it shouldn't be too long. Um, and like I said, we are running with the classic touring car and it is an open race so looking around the paddock there's quite a mixed bag of cars we've got um, we've got Sierra Cosworth we've got an E36 BMW um, we've got um, God, we've got Lotus Cortinas, we've got a real big mixing bag, so it sh should be quite good fun to see what the Jag can do against these kind of cars. Um, some of them are a bit older than the Jag, but like I say, this is going to be a handicapped race. So from my understanding, I've just been talking to one of the guys, one of the officials here, and from what he was explaining to me, your qualifying time will give, you an in give them an indication of how much of a penalty they will give you on the handicap. So um, from our qualifying times, that will then give us the basis for race one one and then race one's um, lap times will give us the basis for race two so basically we've just got to carry on as if we were see if we can get a good qualifying lap that will give us our grid starting position but that doesn't necessarily give us our handicap position for the race so it sounds a little bit complicated but it'll be really interesting to see what happens it obviously levels the field and um, gets rid of any complication with difference in regulations because you're penalized anyway so uh, it should be good and um, i'm really looking forward to seeing what we can do well, I've literally just got in from qualifying, and I must admit it's taken me a little bit of a while to recover from that. That was probably the worst driving conditions I've experienced in a, in a race car on track. The, the sitting water down um, through Church and across the back straight, which is the fastest part of Fruxton, um, was just crazy. There's almost a river running across the centre of the circuit. So um, every time you hit a bit of standing water, the car's twitching and it was just all over the place. It was nearly unbearable to actually get a clean lap in. So I'm not sure how we've done on the times yet i've just looked on tsl um and it looks like we're fifth starting position but it hasn't given us any handicap um scenarios yet so i don't know where that actually relates to time I, I think they do this just for race one so we won't know where we are overall at the moment but out of all the cars out there we're fifth overall which i have to say i'm really pleased at considering some of the really high powered cars that are out there such as the cosworths and the e36 and e30 bmws are obviously naturally a really well set up car and, and they've got some real race pedigree behind them so they're always pretty hard to beat so yeah starting fifth um, like I said the, the, the conditions were just absolutely terrible I couldn't really feel any kind of setup with the car there was so much water go, um, out on circuit I actually had a little bit of a spin um, luckily it was only at slow speed and I managed to stay on circuit and get going again and uh, the BMW that was behind me uh, narrowly missed me which was a little bit interesting but other than that it was fairly pain free and the car was doing everything we wanted it to I mean there's a lot of water in the car I'm just going to try and soak as much of that out as possible I've honestly never seen so much water on a track so um, it's definitely going to be a challenge to race in this but um, we're all in the same field so uh, um, like I said, the race isn't till uh, lunchtime, so it might clear up a little bit by then, but we'll see. 
So hopefully you can hear me okay. I'm actually sat in the assembly area in the car waiting to go out on circuit. Now, we should have actually been out on circuit, but there seems to be a bit of a delay and we've been informed um, that there looks to be an accident at church with one of the trucks. Now, um, apparently there is some damage to the Armaco and there's quite a lot of sitting water across the back straight, which I did actually experience in qualifying. So it obviously hasn't cleared. So we are encroaching lunch, so I can only assume they're probably going to delay our race. Um, they're going to keep us informed but um, judging by the marshal's reaction it looks like a couple of the cars to the left of me they're starting to send back oh actually one of them's getting out of the car so it looks like they are sending us back to the paddock so um, I can only assume that our race is going to be delayed to this afternoon which to be honest with you might not be a bad thing with the fact that the weather's meant to be clearing up this afternoon um, so it looks like we're going to have an hour's break and then they'll probably give us a time for race two so we'll head back to the paddock now. So I'm now back in the paddock and been informed that they have delayed our race till after lunch so we've got an hour's break and they are actually sending out the road sweepers to try and clear the water that's sitting at church. Um, so we should get called up um, early this afternoon and hopefully we can actually get out for race one providing there's no more rain. Now the good news is race one went ahead and we actually um, we had a little bit of rain whilst we were out there but it was a lot drier than it was this morning so I had an absolute cracking race. Um, we started fifth, made a fair few places up actually early on. Um, when some of the quicker cars come through from the back I did unfortunately drop back to about fifth overall. Um, due to the handicap that actually put us in eighth overall so I was pretty pleased with the result. The car was absolutely great and um, it was really tricky conditions and it was quite a busy group so to be honest with you it was pretty much um, something happening on every lap because there's obviously such a difference in speed in cars there's some of the real quick cars up at the front and then we eventually caught up with some of the back markers so we had a bit of fun coming back through there so I genuinely really enjoyed it and it's um, it's quite interesting putting the Jag up against some different cars um, hopefully some of you managed to see it live on YouTube um, but from the car perspective from the driver's seat it was, it was absolutely great and uh, the conditions were quite predictable much better than they had been um, you had to watch a couple of places because it was starting to dry out which gives you a little bit more confidence but can catch you out once you, once you start finding some of the, the wetter parts of the circuit again but no it was was absolutely great really looking forward to race two now we're going to um, probably stiffen up the car for race two because I'm hoping um, we've got a couple of the other races on between us before we're back out this afternoon um, and we've got the trucks and the amount of water they disperse when they're on circuit um, I'm thinking that potentially race two might be a little bit drier than race one so we might go for kind of a stiffer setup more of a dry setup we won't go for a full dry because it's definitely still going to be damp but as long as we don't have any more rain we might be able to get a little bit of a drier race for race two which will be interesting to see how that compares to uh, race one with the pace against these other vehicles I'm literally just been called for race two and we've made the last minute decision to go for pretty much a full dry setup on the car last minute. We, ha we are going to still leave the rear softer than we would do normally um, but we are pretty much going over on the, the dry side of the setup. We've had no further rain since race one and looking at the top part of the circuit it pretty much looks like most of it is dry across the faster parts so it's a little bit risky. I hope we don't get any further rain but looking at the weather forecast it doesn't look like we're going 
cling to. So we're going to risk it. Um, we're starting fifth. We haven't really got anything to lose, and that's one of the one of the the benefits about um, this kind of weekend. It isn't a championship round, so we can kind of really try and test things that we wouldn't normally do on the car. Um, often running the car. Um, softer in the wet is normally more predictable and a safer option but having said that if there is a dry line hopefully it'll give us a bit of an advantage going to a drier setup so we'll see how we get on well tom will return to the jaguar enthusiast club podcast next week to tell us how the day at thruxton ended up you're listening to the jaguar enthusiasts club podcast join the jaguar enthusiasts club now at jec.org.uk Well, on this week's Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, we are crossing the ocean and we're talking to the Jaguar Owners Association of North Texas. And joining us on the podcast this week is Richard Wright, the President, and Ben Davis, the Vice President, all the way from Dallas, Texas. Welcome to the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, chaps. Welcome, Wayne. Good to see you. Hello, Wayne. We uh, we plan to come see you sometime. Maybe bring Jaguars with us. We talked to you in the middle of mad election time over in the States. So uh, for us in the UK who are only seeing the pictures through the TV, what's the mood like in America at the moment? I would say tense. A lot of people are unhappy with the results and some people are happy, but but generally the economy's good. People are happy. They're spending money. COVID's keeping... Uh, traffic down uh people are laying low playing safe so it's uh, it's interesting times and interesting times to also try to run a club and keep enthusiasm up but uh we're doing well our club is growing still that's great news i mean you have no doubt had the problems that we've had here in the uk with lockdowns and the inability to have the usual social gatherings but uh, you did manage to run a concourse earlier on in the year your 50th anniversary concourse which was a phenomenal achievement but how have you coped with the covid situation and how have you kept the club going together Ben, you want to carry that one? This is called the Richard and Ben show at our meetings. We <laughs> pass it off to each other. Yeah, Wayne, it's it has been a challenge. It uh, obviously because of the uh, the virus and things, we have not been able to have the uh, the meetings. In fact, our uh, our last meeting, our official last meeting was was in February, and so it's been a challenge to try to keep people interested. We've uh, we've done it. We've done a couple of drives. We had our concourse. We tried to have a Halloween party a couple of weeks ago. Other than that, just trying to reassure people that we're still here and we're hanging in there till uh, till, till better times. And we do that by having a, an active Facebook and a great website. Have you seen the increase in use by the club of digital means of keeping in touch over the last few months? Only with the younger sets. Uh, we have a lot of seniors in our club, and uh, they don't seem to participate in that. But uh, And we haven't had any luck with Zoom meetings to speak of. But, uh, you know, we're, we're hanging in there and doing well and, and uh, looking forward to maintaining a membership going into next year during COVID times. And, and we try to do that with fun. We'd like to present fun to everybody and uh, try to get ideas from everybody. Everybody, we've got a great board of directors, very creative, and uh, looking forward to a slalom this coming year, maybe two, and uh, setting up our concourses. 
we're actually going to be hosting the uh, International Jaguar Festival in 2022. So we've got to build an army and build up the bank account uh, to be able to, to pull off that event. How many members are you on at the moment then, Richard? And give us a background on where the club's come from and a little bit of its history. Actually, you know, the last two years have, have really been the uh, the pivotal point for the club in that uh, before we had a lot of older people in the club, we were, uh, membership was, was, uh, was, was dwindling. So uh, it was through the act, the increased activities and, and then uh, going after younger members that really, really uh, energized the club for the last couple of years. The, that seems to have really been the, uh, the, the turning factor for us. Don't you agree, Richard? Yes, and we did it digitally uh, with Facebook and the website, and then also members going to car shows and recruiting new club members at car shows. Mm-hmm. If you open an E-Type or something like that in a car show, someone's going to walk up and go, well, I've got one of those in my garage, you know, or my dad had one of those, and I'd like to have one, things like that. Talk us through the sort of cars that you've got in the club at the moment then. Is it a good spread of eras, or are you sort of skewed to one type of Jaguar over the other? Yeah, Richard, we've got, correct me if I'm wrong, but we, we've run from one end of the spectrum to the other, we have, I have a, I have a 1954 uh, XK120, a 57 XK140, but I also have a 1967 uh, Jaguar 420, so, as well as my, my modern car, my commuter, which is a 2018 XE. So as you can see, I'm, I'm a real Jaguar enthusiast, but uh we have a few older cars. We've got a number of E-types from the 60s primarily. And then we sort of jump up to, to modern day cars. We have a great deal. Uh, we have a number of F-types, things of that nature. Uh, Richard, have you, what's your observation? Well, we have one member with an XJ220 and yes. a uh, XKR15. That's true. Forgot about those. And, uh, then we have probably approximately 30 E-types in the club or more. And not all my cars are registered. I have seven E-types. They're not all restored, but I've got one show car and, and some other cars. I'm actually chopping the roof on a V12 2 plus 2 down to coupe height, which is one of my projects. But uh, we've got a fair number of sedans. There's a, a large number of XKs. But I, I think the future is in the F-type. Yeah, uh, the, those younger people with the F-types, they want to get in them and they want to go touring. And I see the future of the Jaguar clubs. I uh, used to our our mainstay used to be concours and dinner meetings, but it's uh, in the future it's going to be touring, and with the more modern cars. And uh, we got lots of Texas to drive around on, so we're close to Oklahoma as well. Are the F-types generally speaking on the streets of Texas? You know, in everyday life. Do you see them around, or, or are they quite a rare car? Because there's certainly a rare car here. It's a growing number. And uh, when, for, uh, when we were at the uh, dealership having our concours, there was a, a lot of F-types coming in for oil changes and service work and stuff like that. And it's, a, it's, it's a growing faction of the club, and, and should, there should be some focus of Jaguar Club leaders to attract those members because they really are the, the future 
And uh, what we're trying to do here in Dallas with the Jaguar Owners Association of North Texas is we're trying to introduce the old Jaguars to the new Jaguar owners. And then they become quite enthusiastic about it. Uh, we were thanked by the, the manager of the Jaguar dealer, Mike Michaelhoff, about the uh, uh, us bringing our old Jaguars and his employees getting to see those cars and realize that there is yeah. heritage there and uh, history and racing history and things like that. So we're enjoying taking the new and blending it with the old. When I think of America and Jaguar, I, it conjures up thoughts to me of Group 44, Bob Tullius. Um, also, of course, the late Mike Cook as well, who was the press and PR manager for Jaguar uh, and Triumph, of course. You've got some great heritage, although, yeah, Jaguar is a British brand. You've got some great American heritage around Jaguar as well, haven't you? That was the target market for Jaguar was the United States. And, uh, yeah, Bob Tullius and his racing efforts, along with Mike Cook, uh, working with him, was the uh, put Jaguar back on the map, winning SCCA racing. And, of course, then Tom Walkershaw with the XJSs over in Europe. Uh, did a, a great job of also rescuing Jaguar from dire straits. But uh, yeah, Bob Tullius, I've, I've had the opportunity of meeting him a couple of times. Actually, I asked him a couple of questions. One, one in particular, had, did you have trouble with the Jaguar V12 engine? He goes, no, they were like factory racing motors. <laughs> that, that was a good comment from Bob Tullius. <laughs> Looking at your, your club activities and uh, keeping that heritage alive, obviously I mentioned early on uh, the 50th anniversary Concours d'Elegance that you managed to hold despite COVID and its best efforts at stopping events. Uh, tell us about that event, how it went and what sort of cars you had there and some of the highlights. Well, Ben, you want to tell them about our protocol first? Uh, protocol, of course, we... Uh, practice safety, of course. Uh, we had signs everywhere, keep your distance, six feet. Everyone had to wear a mask. People as well as uh, the cars were separated, so which, which made us cover a larger area than we typically would. But, you know, it was well, very well attended, and uh, everyone practiced uh, – you know, wearing masks and, and things of that nature. And it was just very successful. We, uh, had one, we only had one judge at a time judge a car. Yes. Instead of the typical three. Yeah. So we just, everything we could do to emphasize safety, we, uh, we designed into the concourse. Typical concourse form. Uh, the cars were separated in, into classes and, uh, so that, that that made it very easy for for the judges to uh, to to get back and forth and and uh, and keep keep the owners separated as well. They were close by, but uh, weren't on top of the car with with the judge. Very well done. Excellent. And uh, yeah, I can. Uh, there is a video uh, that uh, we'll actually try and post with this podcast actually on the description part of the podcast page, so you can actually see some of the cars that turned up. Uh, to that fantastic event um but as you say uh concourse is great but you're looking to do more touring and more uh, events where you get out and use the cars so what are some of your plans for the future for next year when hopefully things get a little bit more back to normal we're uh, we're looking at doing slums we've got a slum uh, 
scheduled, uh, loosely scheduled right now for, for next year. Of course, we have our, our 51 annual concourse will be coming up. We're scheduled uh, typically in the spring, so probably April, May for, for that event. Uh, uh, we'll be doing some drives. Uh, also, in addition to SLOM, we've, uh, we're working on a rally right now for the club. So uh, we're going to see, we've got, we've got different types of events and we're going to see what, uh, what gets the, the most interest from the club. So uh, Richard's the slalom expert in the club and we, uh, Richard, what kind of interest have you, are you seeing as far as the, uh, those events? Well, the, again, the future of our of our club was is going to be the F type younger generations. They love to slalom, and yes. uh, you have to convince people that you know we don't really go much over thirty miles an hour. They're afraid they're going to hurt their cars, and it's really not much different than driving in Dallas to run a slalom. <laughs> so, um, then uh, back to future events. Yes, so. There's a, a re- couple of racetracks in the area, and uh, we we go and do uh, drives at the racetracks. We've been invited by the right. Racing Association for our club to come out and do uh, laps during lunchtime at the racetrack while the racers are refilling and, and getting a bite to eat and taking a break. And then uh, we're, we're always looking for more events, too. And uh, we've got... Uh, the rallies are going to be important. We need to develop our club's rally ability because we are going to be hosting the, the 2022 IJF International Jaguar Festival. So we're having to build uh, uh, leaders and, and team players to, to do that. It's, it's going to be an interesting year. We, uh, we could stand to have a little more breathing room from the COVID and be able to get out and experience more, but uh, it's, it's it's fun. We're uh, we're planning a couple of historical events for this area, uh, attending uh, historical sites in this area. There's an old casino between Dallas and Fort Worth. It was there during Prohibition, underground. We're going to go visit that. We're going to be in. A lot of people have moved to Dallas recently, especially from California and up north. We're in a growing area, and uh, a lot of those people haven't seen the the old sites and and parts of Dallas and. Uh, see a lot of its history. So we're introducing, we'll be introducing more and more people to that. Any, anything we can do to be creative and create interest and get people together and get them out. And there's a lot of interest in getting out as everybody's pinned up in their homes with COVID. Wave at the car next to you, that, that Jaguar next to you and, and uh, enjoy a nice drive. Absolutely. There's definitely the feeling of some pent-up demand building amongst car enthusiasts at the moment to get out there amongst the events. And of course, next year marks so many anniversaries within Jaguar. Uh, over here, we're looking forward to celebrating the 60th anniversary of the E-Type and 20 years of the X-Type Small Saloon and, uh, of course, of the Mark 10 60th anniversary as well. So, uh, yeah, lots to be looking forward to across the worldwide Jaguar community in 2021. Um you don't become the president and vice president of a Jaguar club as you guys are without a serious passion for Jaguar. So individually, just tell us about your own cars and your own story as to how you got into Jaguars in the first place. Let's start with you, Ben. Uh, you know, I started with a uh, 2003 X- XKR 
convertible. Uh, and that's where I got started. Uh, I've always had a passion for, for, for the brand. I, I love the heritage. I, I love the design, the uniqueness of the car. It's, it's a car that you don't see yourself coming and going. So it allows you to be an individual uh, on the road as well. That brought me into to the club. I, out of just curiosity, I went searching to see if there were people with, uh, with a similar interest. And lo and behold, there were two clubs in the Dallas area at that time. There was the driver's club and the owner's club. And I happened to latch on to the owner's club. And those people's interest were, is just was contagious. Since then, I have probably owned approximately 14 Jaguars and uh, just love each and every one. As I mentioned before, I have a XK120, which is in Richard's shop right now being restored. And I've got a, a 57 XK140, which we're very near completion on the, um, uh, on the restoration of that car. However, we've upgraded a few little things, such as we've added air conditioning and uh, power steering and power brakes, things of that nature. But it's, it's exciting to be associated with uh, with the brand. Well, uh, Richard, I know you've had a lifetime alongside Jaguars, haven't you? So uh, give us a potted history of your, your first moments with Jaguar. Well, uh, let's back up for just a second. I apologize. Ben has been national champ twice with that XKR. Yeah, uh, true. And in the concourse and has scored 100 points twice in shows. So, Ben's quite the competitor and uh, glad to have him as one of my best friends. So um, when I was 12 years old, my dad bought a Mark 7. I'm I'm 68 now uh, when I was 12. And uh, I helped him rebuild the transmission on the garage floor. And uh, it worked. It had a broken tooth. We took it to an old um, welder in downtown Dallas. He welded a new tooth on first gear (laughs) and put it back together and it worked. And uh, I'd always enjoyed fixing things when I was a kid. And my dad saw that in me. And when I was about to go into ninth grade, he says, uh, if you'll rebuild the motor in that Mark 7, you can drive it to ninth grade. So I drove a 52 Mark 7M to, to ninth grade. And then he bought an XK140 Roadster. So it was, it was a tag team thing, working on the Jaguars and learning. And, and uh, then I went to college and bought and sold and worked on British cars to put myself through college and wound up with a degree in British cars. <laughs> and uh, since then, I've probably have owned 100 cars. Um, and that's over 50 years. That's just, you know, two a year. It's no big deal, right? <laughs> Hardly worth mentioning. <laughs> so... Um, Anyway, now I, I currently have seven E-types, two XJSs, and uh, oh, some some other cars I can't think of right now. But uh, definitely, I've dedicated my life to Jaguars. I'm third-generation mechanic. Uh, my son works with me now. He's fourth-generation. And uh, he drives a uh, S-Type R. And uh, it's, we're having fun. We're building some nice cars and... Uh, it's it's been a lot of fun. I'm excited about my E-type investments and uh, becomes part of my investment portfolio. So uh, it's 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 been great. It's been great. How is part supply for especially the older Jaguars in your part of the world? Because um, we we have good supplies. Often there's 
issues with fitment um, and sometimes quality of things like rub, rubber parts and, and things like that. What what sort of challenges do you have over there, especially in the restoration of the older Jaguars? Well, I'm sure we're having the same problems that you're having. And that is, first of all, all the new old stock is gone. And uh, some I'd like to share on this podcast uh, with other classic Jaguar owners. The doors don't close properly because the original seals for the doors, et cetera, were natural rubber. And now they sell us neoprene seals and they're too firm and it makes it difficult to make doors and trunks close. So you have to cut the seals, but that's why there's a difference. And that's why no one's happy with the new seals from any manufacturer. It's because they, they're just too firm, not natural rubber, but uh, yeah, the, um, all the, uh, I know the owners and managers of most of the big Jaguar suppliers here in the United States, and uh, they're having trouble getting parts. Uh, there's, of course, uh, we're ha- everyone's having trouble getting parts out of Korea, Taiwan, India, Japan, wherever the parts may be coming from. Australia certainly is a, a long hike for parts and adds a lot of freight costs. But uh, uh, another problem that's happening at the parts suppliers here, besides having trouble getting parts, is having trouble distributing the parts. In fact, uh, Moss Motors, as I understand it, they are only allowing one person in a container uh, to unload a whole container. And it can take them certainly a good part of a day, if not a whole day, to unload those. And uh, they're not running double shifts at this time, as I understand it. So that's also slowing down parts. There's lots of back orders. And uh, so it's COVID has created uh, parts challenges for us in a lot of ways. And uh, it's when I have to make orders, I've, I've always had to order at least from two suppliers uh, to complete orders for cars, but now it's up to four or five. Well, of course, cars are, Jaguars in particular from the 50s and 60s, far more numerous in the States than they ever were here in the UK. Something like 80, 85% of Jaguars cars uh, came over uh, to your part of the world. Um, do you still keep pulling them out of barns over there? Is there still a supply of those cars that keep getting discovered or or is that starting to dry up now? Well, I, I have a saying that uh, Jaguars are, you find Jaguars where you find them because you just never know what's going to pop up next. Uh, but of course, uh, back in the late 80s, the, the dollar was down and the uh, certainly the mark was up. I presume the pound was up and we would have, at my shop in Austin, we would have people every day walk down the driveway wanting to buy cars and send them to Europe. So uh, there was a gentleman named Hans. I don't know his last name. He was bringing in uh, empty cargo ships, filling them with British and German cars and taking them back to Europe weekly and uh, doing quite well financially on that. So a lot of the, a lot of the good cars are gone in Dallas, for instance, when we have all British car day, hardly any of the cars here at that show are from Dallas. They're, they've all migrated here with the uh, migration of people to Dallas and uh, from the north and from California. There's still some cars hiding, but they're they're getting far and few between. All the all the XK 150s are pretty much gone, you know. <laughs> yeah, they've all been found. Yeah, I think that goes for a lot of the British marks, not just Jaguar as well. You know, it was the market for British car manufacturers throughout the 60s in particular they all came over and then there was that as you say that big drive to to bring them all back again when when the uh, the market was was supporting it but 
yeah, perhaps not so much of a uh, a kind of gold rush, I guess, that they used to be on it. Last um, year, I did happen to find a January 62 E-Type Roadster, which, you know, those cars were hard to find 30, 40 years ago. And I was pleased to find it running and driving. It was in an airplane hangar. And then I picked up a V12 2 Plus 2 two weeks ago that I'd actually seen the car 15 years before, forgotten about it, and uh, it became available and rescued it. The business is called Vintage Car Rescue. I mean, uh, we that's what we do. We rescue vintage, vintage cars, mostly E-types. We're going to change the name to the Jag Lab because we like to customize as well. Well, I have a feeling that uh, there'll be a lot of people listening to this podcast, especially in the UK, will be thinking, hmm, time for a trip out to Texas to go and visit the Jag Lab, I reckon. It's been fantastic to uh, hear how club life is on the other side of the pond from us here in the UK. And uh, it's great to hear that there's such a thriving Jaguar scene over in Texas as well and and to hear your enthusiasm uh, for the cars. So tell me... For you, what sums up your passion for Jaguar? My passion for Jaguar is, as I mentioned before, I I love the fact, I love I love the brand, I love the heritage, and it just speaks to me as an individual. It um, it, it it's fun. It's it's just fun, and the fact that you don't see yourself coming and going, that's it in a nutshell. So Wayne, I've, I have uh, worked on lots of different kinds of cars. I like to explore their different uh, basic designs. And I've worked on everything from old Corvettes to old Ferraris to old Bugattis to Aston Martins. And, and I just keep going back to the E-Type. Uh, it's so well-made and so far ahead of its time. And uh, even uh, slalom racing one and uh, in the future vintage racing one, they're, they're so rigid and firm and have such a great structure and the torsion bars work great. And the rear suspension, once you fully understand it, uh, what a work of art it is. Uh, just incredible design work. Now, I, I do wonder why there's so many bolts on these old Jaguars. They seem a little <laughs> overbuilt. I, uh, if anybody knows, I, I, I believe maybe there was someone at the Jaguar factory that maybe had a cousin that had a bolt manufacturing plant or something i don't know but uh, and I, and i and i wonder too if the engineers design things and then redesign things and redesign things just so they could have a job next year so, and they made them complicated so instead of simplifying they seemed to make them a little more complicated as it went but uh, that's part of the beauty of the car too uh, it's you you're driving something unique wherever you go yeah, and, sure. and and parts are half the price or or less than that of a Ferrari. So, what can I say? And that was William Lyon's target market. And you, you get treated differently on the roads. I'm sure it's the same where you are. There's a certain you know you get you, if you're driving a Ferrari, there's a certain group of people that look very envious at you and not in a nice way. But you're driving a classic Jaguar, and everyone smiles and points, and everyone has a warm feeling towards it, don't they? It has that effect on people. You are absolutely correct. And and when you say that I drive a Jaguar, it just people's eyes light up and. I just it just puts you in a different category definitely that's why we love them and why it's so great to hear that there's a passion around the world 
And one of the things we like to do on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast is to uh, bring the worldwide Jaguar family together. So it's been fantastic to talk to you guys from the Jaguar Owners Association of North Texas, uh, from us here at the Jaguar Enthusiast Club UK. We wish you every success with your events in 2021. And it's fantastic to talk to you. And uh, hopefully we'll see you here and you'll see us over there at some point soon. <laughs> Fabulous. It's a plan. After the, after the bug war is over, <laughs> and I have, a, I have a little saying I'd like to share with you. It's so many Jaguars, so little time. Uh, so true. <laughs> so true. That's a fantastic way to end. Richard, Ben, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Wayne. It's been a pleasure. And I look forward to shaking your hand someday. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message. Or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.